Welcome to Jesse War Radio. Jesse War Radio is dedicated to peering behind the veil of esoteric iconology and symbolism and is available from jessiewar.com. Each week we interview authors, historians, thinkers and artists in an effort to discern the truth behind symbols, myths, icons and allegories. New episodes are posted every Friday. Members of Jesse War Radio gain access to the second hour of every show. Find out more about becoming a supporting member of Jesse War Radio by clicking on the subscribe link in the top navigation menu at jessiewar.com. Thank you for tuning in. Born and raised in Los Angeles, Jim Thompson attended UCLA, studying mathematics and philosophy. His interest in mountaineering led him to start an outdoor company in 1972, Wilderness Experience. The company grew rapidly and completed a public stock offering in 1980. After owning two mountaineering retail stores and being a partner in a sales representation organization, in 1994, Jim took a corporate job with Jansport, part of the VF Corporation. In 2000, Jim and his wife Katie moved to Belgium to head up an international division of VF that included Jansport, Eastpac, and Kipling. Jim retired in 2005, and he and Katie purchased a sailboat in the Netherlands. For the next 10 years, they sailed the Mediterranean, the Atlantic, the Caribbean, through the Panama Canal, and across the Pacific to Tahiti, Tonga, New Zealand, Vanuatu, Australia, Papua New Guinea, and Thailand. During this time, they sailed 50,000 miles and visited 50 countries. Their favorite country was Vanuatu and especially the island of Tana. After a month-long visit in 2011, they returned the following year for another month. It was during these visits that they got to know the chief and some of the members of the John Frum movement. Currently, their sailboat Tanaya is in Venice, Italy, and they are spending the winter in Mammoth Lakes, California. Hour one of our interview with Jim Thompson. Jim Thompson discusses his background, the John Frum deity, the end of cannibalism, the Tana Volcano and its flying rocks, the possible colonization of South America and Easter Island by Melanesians, Melanesian clothing, technical limitations on the island of Tana and Vanuatu, the authenticity of rituals performed by natives, their diet and agriculture. Hi, Jim Thompson. Thanks very much for joining us on Jesse Wall Radio. How are you doing today? Uh, doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you on. Uh, so. Jim, uh, you're the author of a book called Searching for John Frum, Quest for the True Story of the John Frum Movement. Is it really a cargo cult? Now, that's a provocative title. So you're asking if, uh, if the John Frum Movement really is a cargo cult. And we'll get into that later. But first, I'd like to find out if you could give us a bit of information on your background. Okay, I was uh, a longtime person in the outdoor business. I was a mountaineer and climber and then uh, used that as my job, too. Uh, worked for a number of companies, and from 1994 to 2004, I worked in Europe working with the acquisitions of a number of outdoor companies, including Jansport, Eastpac, the North Face, Vans, and others. Uh, in 2005, I decided to retire uh, a little early at 56, and my wife and I bought a sailboat. Uh, she had never been on a sailboat before, and I had always loved the, uh, the romantic idea of sailing. And we thought we would sail from Belgium just to the Mediterranean. But we did that. We enjoyed it. We decided to cross the Atlantic. 
uh, to the Caribbean. We went through the Panama Canal, and then we spent a couple of years crossing the Pacific. I went to New Zealand, Australia, and many other countries. Um, so it was a pretty exciting adventure. Uh, yeah, it sounds like boat. it. <laughs> currently, our boat is in Venice, Italy. And oh, so, nice. All right. So it's cold there, so we're back in California for the winter. And for going transatlantic or transoceanic, does the boat have to be a certain size? Ours is 40 feet long, which is uh, smaller than a lot of boats, but bigger than the people that have done it in incredibly little boats. Uh, but when it's out in the middle of the ocean, it seems small, but for two people, it's a good size to handle. And, but when you're out in the middle of the ocean, I mean, do they have like huge storms and gigantic waves like in the movies or no? <laughs> they do. Luckily, we, we've been in some good storms, but never any terrible ones. So uh, we've been very lucky. We also do try to avoid being in areas during typhoon seasons and hurricane seasons and, and that. But uh, uh, there is there's a, the chance, even though we've been very lucky. Oh, okay, that's cool. The concept of a cargo cult is one that's actually not that well known, surprisingly, considering how interesting a topic it is. Can you give us a little bit of an, an idea what cargo cults are and specifically what the John Frum cargo cult is? Yes, I think the, uh, the first, first times it was really mentioned uh, in the Western world was in, I think, 19, oh, 1930s. Some, uh, somebody doing uh, anthropological studies in Micronesia came across a group of people who believed that their god was from the West and uh, would be bringing them gifts and uh, all the riches of the, the outside world. And then uh, there's not a lot of research done on it at that time, but it grew more during World War II when, uh, at least the story goes, that these uh, remote villages found American uh, military bases on their islands and with uh, you know, white people bringing lots of uh, expensive things and uh, food and chocolates and Coca-Cola, and also seeing that there were black people in the uh, in the organiz in the uh, military too, and they believed that this was their their god and that there was going to be uh, supplies coming and uh, riches coming from the west. So that was the story, and that there was quite a few of them documented on different islands where they uh, actually built. Uh, towers for landing planes, building them out of bamboo, or clearing landing strips, or even building fake airplanes out of bamboo to make so that planes would know where to land. Uh, and it became it was a fun story. I think in the in the forties and early forties, David Attenborough did uh, a few TVs or uh, early magazine articles and TV specials on cargo cults. And then uh, John from. Cargo cult. Obviously, that's probably like John from America, right? But the name of the the name of the cult is John from. Yes, that's that, and that's how they uh, still call it today. They call it. They don't obviously. They don't call it a cargo cult. They call it the John from movement. Uh, the the people of Tana, which is uh, one of the the more remote islands of uh, Vanuatu, which is a pretty remote country, uh, are the ones that believe in John from. I don't believe it's anywhere else in the uh, in the world. And do they um, actually build effigies to John Frum? And the reason I'm asking is because apparently in 2013, the theme of Burning Man was John Frum, and they built a huge effigy of a, a wicker man type thing on top of a giant wicker UFO. Right. Yes, I uh, I thought that was pretty interesting that uh, Burning Man chose that as their theme for the year. Uh, no, they do not. Uh, they uh, they live a very simple life, and uh, uh, 
and don't have any special rituals like that other than music. So how did, how exactly do they worship John from? I mean, are they actually imagining an entity like a, a man or are they just basically recalling GIs? No, they're actually uh, imagining a man. And uh, in I, I talked to quite a few different believers in the uh, John from movement and most picture him as as a white man. Uh, some believe he lives in America. Uh, some believe he lives in the volcano on Tana. Um, and they believe that they do speak with him constantly. Uh, the, uh, the main village where the, the headquarters of the movement is, is located have a musical event every Friday night, and it goes all night until sunrise. And uh, little bands from different villages all over the island will come there on Friday night, and they'll sing songs that John Frum taught them in the previous week. So John Frum is a deity within their pantheon, or is he their principal deity? He is their principal deity, as far as I understand. Uh, they never talk about any other deity. They do talk about uh, magic rocks that have either healing or, uh, or can hurt people. Uh, they talk about different uh, uh, gods, I mean, not different gods, but different uh, things that, that they believe in. Uh, the volcano is very important. But as far as I understand, there was no, there's no other god and nobody else. They've never, nobody, when I was there, ever mentioned any other deity that they would talk with. And, and do you think that John Frum replaced a previous deity? That's a really interesting question because uh, talking to one person who uh, was very fluent in English, was educated, uh, but was raised on Hannah, told me that uh, the John, John Frum, before that, there was only the, uh, the belief in magic stones and the, the controlling of the weather and more of the naturalistic uh, beliefs but john from uh the missionaries came in the uh 1910 1920 and 1930 uh to tana and to all of vanuatu uh, because vanuatu was run jointly by the french and the british and missionaries then brought christianity teachings to them and the the belief that uh this man told me and i think it was true from talking to other people is that john from first appeared to a number of the chiefs in 1935 and told them that uh, believing in the Western and religion and believing in Christianity was a bad thing because they had given up all their uh, traditional ways, which they call custom, spelled with a, a K when you see it written. And they, they had a series of, of events that they would do, uh, dancing and things, which the uh, Christian missionaries uh, stopped them from doing. They also drink kava which is a very important part of their culture, and the missionaries stopped them from uh, drinking kava. So in 1935, when John Frum met with the five or so uh, leaders of the different villages, he convinced them that they should get rid of uh, the white man's religion and go back to their custom beliefs. And Antana was one of the more successful uh, islands where they were able to uh, have a move back to a custom belief and away from Christianity for, for many, many years. And given that it was so recent, I mean, is there any evidence as to who John Frum might have been? No, there's uh, a lot of theories. And, you know, I actually, when I spoke with the uh, son of the, the chief, uh, who does speak English very well, uh, he thought that every theory that I brought up to him uh, was not true. He, he believes that it's a, a spirit, but a person uh, that came to them and um, and that's and that's what it is. And they, uh, I don't think they they really looked they looked at it as somebody who came to help them. 
And I, the other thing that happened about that same time was they were being held down by the colonial government. And uh, then World War II came, and the Americans did use a lot of uh, fighters from Vanuatu. Uh, not fighters, but uh, people helping the military effort, working on building airstrips and that. And they did support the people of Canada um, and gave them sort of a legitimacy to have their own custom beliefs. And that's I, the least the reason why they say they believe that uh, John Froman is an American. So, but it could have hypothetically been a sort of vision that they saw that told them, no, you guys don't have to be Christian. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, whether or not it was a real, real person that came and met them or a vision, it's pretty hard to say. And do you think that Christianity had anything to do with, with the transition to John from, because you mentioned that um, a lot of the early Christian missionaries were killed and eaten. So what happened that they stopped eating? Did they stop eating the Westerners and, and, and what happened to make them stop? Yeah, actually, on the, yeah, they did eventually stop eating them. Uh, the last recorded, uh, <laughs> time of, of cannibalism was still not that long ago. I think it was in the 50s or 60s. But the, uh, the Christian missionaries did stop cannibalism very early on. And by the 1930s, that was not part of their religion or a part of their uh, activities. And they accepted uh, the Christian missionaries. The part that they really didn't like was the stopping of their dancing and their traditional ceremonies. And I think especially the drinking of kava, which was such an important part of the culture there. And is that a different time than uh, when the Azmat stopped being cannibals, or was it the same time period? You know, that's a good question. I honestly don't know. I know that uh, in Papua New Guinea, it seems like it went to a later date, but uh, that's beyond my knowledge. Are they similar people? Are they the same peoples? I mean, are they related? Um, do they cross from island to island, or are, are they different, different ethnologically? No, they're the same people. That, uh, people from Vanuatu came from Papua New Guinea. Papua New Guinea was populated very early on, uh, I believe around 30,000 years ago, and then slowly moved eastward, uh, moving on different islands and moving all the way across uh, the early Lapita people that uh, there's been a lot of anthropological research on what populated many of the islands in uh, the South Pacific, uh, Fiji and Tonga. and. And if you believe some of the anthropologists, which uh, I have spent time with a couple of them that have done research on the migration of people across the Pacific, uh, they're very convinced that they made it all the way to South America. Oh, really? To where in South America do they, do they think? As far as I know, the, the sites that they have found in Peru have, uh, they found uh, the DNA from rats and chickens, which is, matches the DNA of rats and chickens from Papua New Guinea and Southeast Asia. And so that's where they believe it. Uh, not completely accepted by all, all anthropologists and researchers, but the woman I met was one of the early uh, researchers working with DNA, and she was just totally convinced. And her view was, you know, why, does, why do other people think they went so, so far? Was it the last island had a sign that said, don't go farther because there's a mainland there? Uh, she believes they just kept going. And they have a really elaborate computer simulations of how the travel could be done and safely. It wasn't a reckless thing where they could go out, find islands and uh, make it back and slowly move across. So that's, that's, I think, pretty much the current belief now. Yeah. And I was told about how there's a carving of a Spanish galleon on one of the Eastern, Easter Island rock uh, uh, stones. Yes. I, I yeah. read 
That'd be really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. There's there are pictures of it online. <clears throat> Excuse me. There are pictures of it online, and it does look rather convincing. It's, it looks like a sailing ship, and it looks European as well. It's possible. I mean, the winds blow that direction if you're at the right uh, latitude. So it, I don't see why that would not have happened. And um, not to belabor the point, but in terms of cannibalism, did you ever feel um, threatened at all? And have you you didn't hear any rumors whatsoever that there have been cannibalizations anytime within the past few decades? Uh, no, and. You know, absolutely not threatened. These are probably some of the, the nicest people that we've met anywhere in the world, the most uh, accepting and the most hospitable, uh, who really have nothing. I mean, there's no electricity, there are no, no internet, no phones, uh, and they grow all their own food. They really, a lot of the uh, villages have basically no contact with the outside world, or if they do, it's one or two people a year. And they were so accepting of us. So never any even slight fear. We did have uh, one village that was very remote where they, they were te- telling us about how they used to store uh, the uh, meat from people from when they would kill, how they would store it in bamboo and keep it for long periods of time. And my wife did ask the chief uh, through an interpreter, uh, you know, why they ate to people, whether it was to, to gain powers or because of a religious reason or what the reason was. and. Basically, the chiefs just kind of looked at us like, you know, no idea why. And it kind of, we got the impression it was, well, why wouldn't you eat them? You've killed them. Right. (laughs) And is it, it makes it sound to me like, um, I don't know if this is a a politically correct metaphor, but like when a diver goes into an an ocean and where the fish are not used to people, uh, the fish can be really friendly. So do you think that it's, these people are extra friendly because they're not exposed to foreigners a, a lot? Well, I think that's definitely part of it. I mean, they, de- they don't have a problem with tourists. They're still very excited that people do come. Tana, uh, uh, Vanuatu has about 80 islands that, that are inhabited, and Tana is one of the southernmost. But it has, uh, I believe it's one of the most active volcanoes in the, in the world, and it is very definitely the, the most active volcano that you could walk up to the edge of, because there is no government. There's nobody stopping you. Uh, we went up to the edge, and the volcano erupts every 10 or 15 minutes and shoots huge boulders way, way over your head. Really? Yeah, it's, it's absolutely amazing. If, you know, if it's a possibility to get there, it would, it's one of the, the highlights of things you could ever see. And uh, a little bit scary, but they warn you to, to watch for rocks if they're coming towards you, to keep your eye on them and move out of the way. People have had, uh, taken pictures of car-sized boulders that have hit within 20 feet of them. Uh, we didn't have anything quite that exciting, but it was pretty scary. And because of that, there is a small airstrip on the northern part of the island, and some tourists do come in. I don't know the number, but uh, they do fly in. You can fly to Port Vila in one of the other islands of Vanuatu and then take a small plane there. So it's not a cheap thing to do, but people do it. And there are a few uh, pickup trucks on the island of Tana, and the, that's what they, how they make their living. They take tourists from uh, the little area where they can stay near the airport and out to the volcano for the evening. And so that's, and so they do meet tourists at that time, but those tourists usually stay for the day and they're out of there. It's, there's you know, the nicest place you could stay on the island still has just pit toilets, uh, definitely cold water. Uh, if they have electricity, it's only for a short time when they run a generator because fuel there is very expensive. So it's a remote area. So not many people even go there. And the John Frum group is even more remote, even though they're right next to the volcano. Uh, and a few tourists will go there for their Friday night. They welcome people to their Friday night music uh, events. 
uh, and we've, we've been a couple times, and there'll, there'll be a couple of other people, quite often other people on sailboats like us who have, who have sailed there. And did you yourself see, how many rocks did you see flying from the volcano? Oh, hundreds. I mean, You're kidding, really? So, I mean, it's, it's, it's deadly then. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> every so often, uh, tourists do get, get killed. Not, for, not very often, but it's scary enough that you usually don't, don't want to get in any of the areas that are too dangerous. But that's something definitely to look up. It's Mount Yasser. Uh, and uh, some, somebody just recently flew a drone through the explosions and took incredible photos of it. But it's an amazing place. And you can see why you would believe in the power of something when uh, you have this volcano. Because we stayed uh, in the one village at the base where we stayed on our way to the John Frum village. Uh, they, they have uh, small huts, but they also have tree houses. And we stayed in a treehouse, and it would shake every 10 or 15 minutes when the volcano would explode, and we were a ways away. The sky would light up red. Uh, it's, it, it is a different world when you're there, and all, all these beliefs seem so reasonable when you're there. Oh, right, right. And your roof wouldn't necessarily be a good protection either from the, the – they're like meteorites, right? Oh, yeah. If you were close <laughs> – nobody lives that close to the volcano. People live a few miles away where the, the rocks don't come that far, uh, but there's a lot of ash in the air. and. When the, the winds shift, you know, there'll be a lot of ash coming in certain areas. Okay, and then when you uh, actually do interact with the, um, with the local people, do, are they expecting that you give them uh, gifts, or how does that work? No, they actually aren't. They're very excited with uh, getting anything they can get. Uh, the children just love the fact that they can get a magazine because there, there is no printed material on the island. And if, even keeping something, and uh, when the, the big tor uh, typhoons come through, like this cam that went through last year, people lose everything, lose their houses, lose all their possession. And so taking magazines to children uh, and the, the people in the village was one of the highlights. We subscribed to National Geographic just to be able to give those away. Hmm. Uh, on some of the islands, and John Frum was one of the ones, we also bought a number of those emergency flashlights that have the hand crank because they obviously can't get batteries there. And uh, that was an incredible highlight because they have no light. Very few places, uh, they have a light, they have one for the village. So they don't have electricity, they don't have smartphones, they don't even have magazines. No, they, they, this is truly, they're living exactly like they lived hundreds of years ago. You will see some people with phones that people have given them, but they don't work as phones, but they do, they have music on them because they use the, the recording part of it, but that's it. Uh, and they have no way of charging them. So when we first sailed into Port Resolution, which is the bay uh, closest to the volcano, uh, people paddled out in dugout canoes, bringing cell phones they wanted us to charge for them. And, they had, and we're, we thought it was pretty strange since there is no service there. And it was just so they had the music. And they would sometimes have to wait. One guy said he had waited two years for a boat to come in that could charge his phone so he could listen to music again. Do they wear T-shirts and shorts, or are they still wearing native garb? There's some villages on the island that wears native garb uh, and the, that, are be, that believe a little more in staying very custom. But the majority of people wear T-shirts and shorts. Uh, New Zealand does a really good job of having collection uh, locations all over the North Island of New Zealand for clothes for, that get shipped to Vanuatu. I'm not sure how, if it's through what groups, but uh, they end up having, having t old T-shirts. And it's fun to see all the different... Uh, different shirts that they have from, from past. So that's, that's a pretty big deal. And most people will only own one or two or one pair of shorts. But, uh, 
they do wear Western clothes that way. What do you think about that? What are your personal feelings on that? Because it's, it's some, it's, sometimes it seems like a shame that when you see natives wearing t-shirt and shorts, because it just completely denatures them, you know? <laughs> well, from a, from a tourist point of view or um, for, from a photography, travel photography point of view, it's, have, it's fun to have people be truly native and truly the way that you picture them. But it's not the way that people are living. And uh, they, they have a lot of things. They, they're very aware of what's happening, uh, what things are available in the world. And they do want certain things. And it's, you know, it's really hard to say that some people should just stay dressed so that they look cool for us to take photos of. Uh, T-shirts and shorts are very comfortable to wear. Uh, sandals, uh, not a lot of people still go only barefoot, but sandals are uh, an advantage. Uh, they do believe in education. So there are certain modern things that they, they think are very important. But uh, I, I think it's always wrong for people to just decide that you know some cultures should just stay where they are now just because it's we think it's an interesting way even though we would never do that right they're keeping them like a zoo basically exactly but it seems like it's only a matter of time until uh until cell phones are common there where they're charged with solar panels or whatever i i think the thing that will happen is there'll be more solar panels and lighting uh we we did find on one of the islands the or the Japanese, uh, when they do the big long net fishing lines out in the Pacific, they have these floats on their fishing lines and they have a GPS and a transmitter on a float so they can keep track of where their lines are. And included in that is a solar power to run those. And every so often those break loose. And one washed up on one of the islands and we were, the people found it didn't know what it was. And we were able to take it apart and it had the solar cells and a battery. And I had some LED lights on the boat. And we rig, rigged up a light for inside one of their huts so that they could have the solar <laughs> That's panel. That's great. It would be great for people to bring solar uh, light to them because the children are really uh, excited about learning and the parents really consider education to be such an important part. But when you have to work in your gardens just to feed yourselves and everything and you can't read or do anything after dark, it makes it very hard. So I think that would be a great advantage. Cell phones is a long ways off because uh, the cost of putting in towers uh, to a people that uh, don't make any money. They, they're very, the only money that really is made on Tana is a few of the people who work as guides for taking people up to the volcano. Or if you're really rich and you have a, uh, an old pickup truck that you can drive tourists around on. But the majority of people uh, have no, no way of making money at all. They're not impoverished though, right? I mean, they have good food, right? What, what exactly do they eat? Do they eat pigs, right? Yes, pigs are, pigs are really important. That's actually a, also a, a standard of how, how wealthy you are, how many, how many pigs you own. Uh, chickens, definitely. Uh, and then their gardens grow just truly the most amazing fruit and vegetables. Uh, we, and they have eggs. Uh, we, we would trade some things that they wanted, uh, especially for the bananas and different fruits, which are, were so good. Uh, the outside food that they really loved having was uh, rice. Was very uh, was probably the number one thing that people asked for, and then also flour. Why don't they eat a, a lot of fish? Do they eat fish? They eat some, and uh, and that's that's a, they go out fishing every day, so that's definitely a major part of it. Uh, and Tana, there's also a lot of lobster, so they have lobster also. So fish was a pretty common. Uh, and, and what kind of fruits do they have that you hadn't seen before? I'm trying to think of the, the names. There are things that look like papayas, and I'm not sure what they're called. There's also a um, bad person to ask. My wife would know the names of all the <laughs> things. Uh, she had ladies teaching her how to cook things, and uh, we, we learned to make lap-lap, which is a, a 
really interesting meal that they make for big celebrations. We also learned to make lots of other things. So she spent time in their uh, in the village learning to cook, and uh, actually then took a couple of uh, different women out to our boat to teach them how we we cooked. And their favorite was when we made chocolate cake. But, mm -hmm. uh, but the food is actually very good. We had no problem. We stayed on Tana uh, two year uh, two times, but both times for over a month and ate all local food and it was it was excellent and then um in terms of authenticity um i remember when i when i was visiting the amazon near iquitos peru they would take us around on boats and there'd be like a sort of tribe of native people that would dress up in supposedly native outfits and dance around for us but it was really just you know to try to get uh money are there are there rituals in their songs and stuff how how much are they influenced by outside influences and then also are they also doing them for a sort of show or is it for their own purposes for the majority of the villages we visited uh and the villages are very remote from each other and that they actually speak different languages uh because of the terrain there's uh villages did not interact between themselves so there's quite a few different villages uh some of them still follow the custom beliefs and wear the clothes and of those i know two that have uh setups for tourists to come to them and they'll have tourists come and, uh, and pay them, and they definitely do the, the dances and, uh, and show a lot of their crafts and things to tourists, and they're trying to make money that way. We didn't spend much time in either of those two villages. Uh, the villages that we spent time in uh, didn't have, they were out of, just far enough out of the way. If it wasn't from where you could land an airplane getting to the volcano, the other villages are very remote, and there's basically walking. You don't drive to most places. So they don't uh, have any way of having tourists there to make money off of. Uh, whether they would do it, I don't know. It's, you know, the one village, uh, Yakel, uh, it actually gets written up every so often in uh, Smithsonian or different magazines because they do welcome outsiders, and the chief speaks English well. And they do the dances, and they, uh, you know, women still don't wear tops, and a lot of the things that, uh, make it interesting for tourists and for them to bring money in. We went to some big ceremonies on, in different villages. The biggest ceremony they do of a year is, called a, is a circumcision ceremony. It's when a boy becomes a man somewhere between 7 and 11, and they'll take him away for a month into the bush, uh, do the circumcision, and then when he comes back into the village, it's a huge event, and uh, people uh, come from all around. We were at one that probably had more than 1,000 people at it. And it's an all-night affair. But uh, there would be outsiders. There would be like two or three people. Like that was it. It was not something that was open just generally to outside people. So that you could definitely say that that was authentic. And I did see your video on that, by the way. I saw you, you talking about it. And then also there was footage of the event itself uh, right. where, where the boys returned. Or I, I guess it was one boy or more. I'm not sure that was returning. And they were doing a, a group dance. I think the one from the video was one boy. We were at uh, another one where there were uh, four or five boys that came back. It's a pretty amazing, amazing event. And that, that would definitely be authentic. There's no reason to oh. believe otherwise, right? Because they're not doing it for Absol you or anybody that's an outsider, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, in fact, the majority of them, I'm sure there are no outsiders. We were lucky to be at that one. And so, you know, to have, have two of us at, a, at one of those events was a big deal. And we became, you know, we got to sit with the, uh, the chief and the, and the parents of the boy and things. We were special but that was more just because we were guests and how did it feel to be amongst 
those people that, you know, were so foreign to you. And also by, by watching the video, it didn't look like they were really bothered in the least by you guys being there. It was just like you guys were welcome. Yes, absolutely. Uh, they accepted us as guests and it would be just like you inviting somebody new you met to, you know, some family gathering or stuff like that. Uh, we were, we were very welcome. And we, we also very luckily for us, uh, one of the things of uh, the islands uh, have is they, they play soccer. That's uh, the sport. And the majority of the, the, the men that play it uh, don't own shoes. So they're playing on, you know, on ground that's rocks and everything and without shoes. And they have a ball. Lots of times the ball is not even a real ball. It's been made out of wrapped up plastic or other things. But uh, the teams on Montana will play each other. And it's a big event when two or three villages will get together and have a soccer game. And the winners of the events on Tana have a chance. The government pays their way to fly to the main island for a championship. And one of the requirements is you need an ID card with your picture on it. Uh, and there is one place on Tana where you could get a picture done. But for mo- even somebody working, it would be a month's salary to get a picture made. And most people there was, had no money, so there was not even a possibility of doing that. And we have a small printer on, on board the boat, a photo printer. And so I became the photographer taking pictures of people to make their ID cards. And we made over a, a thousand ID cards for people using the pictures. And because of that, I was really accepted as being the photographer. And so at events and things, everybody was quite happy to have me take, coming around taking pictures, which uh, uh, you know, for us was special. I don't think it would be an easy thing for an outsider to come in and do. Yeah. How, many, how did you, did you laminate them or onto cards? Uh, they, they have a way of, uh, the, the cards are made by the government. They just have to come with the picture. So we had to print the right size, passport size pictures for them. And they then went to the government office and did something with them. That's fantastic. And did any of them uh, uh, make it onto the finals? Not, you know, not as far as I know, but I don't, I don't know. I would, uh, I would think that it would be hard because when you get to the main island, uh, maybe there's more money and people actually uh, have shoes and have things like that. So, uh, but I have no idea. Never, never followed up on it. And I'm and not sure they care. They just, it's just so much fun. It's uh, like a big event. What about, okay. So it sounds to me like they're very contented, happy people, but in some ways that sounds like it might be too good to be true. Right. And I'm not trying to dig up dirt. I'm just trying to really get at the crux of the issue. Cause I, I'm not there. So I can't really um, surmise it for myself to try to understand whether they feel they're in a predicament or not. Do they feel free and therefore they don't really need foreigners help or they're just happy to receive what help they get i think they actually are incredibly happy the way they are uh they do like getting uh things that would make their lives better some of the men on the island we had talked to had uh gotten work permits and gone to new zealand to work for a year or two because they could save up enough money to build a nice house back on Tana with metal walls uh, uh better protection uh but everybody we talked to uh, was very, very content there. Didn't really see, I didn't see any real reason that they wanted their life to change a lot. I mean, the things they would want would be like, you know, a light or something like that. Not that they really wanted to, to move away or do anything else. Uh, they have very, very good life. In fact, talking to a lot of the people, we talked about this a lot. Uh, you know, they think that it was sort of funny that when they've talked to other tourists, that people only have short times to go someplace. They, they can't go visit a family and stay for a month or two if they go visit somebody on another island, uh, that they can't spend the days with their family, that that, you know, is not a common thing in the Western world. So 
I think overall they're very, very uh, content and given the choice probably wouldn't change a lot. The problem is, is like the storm that happened last year with uh, Cyclone Pam, where they lose everything. And that's when they have major starvation problems because they don't, they don't stockpile any food or anything because they just throw it and it goes. So that can have a major impact on their, their lives. And that's where outside aid is really, really important to them. That, that seems to be in stark contrast to the way that Hawaiians uh, have come to view mainland Americans and that there's a, a large separatist mu- movement in Hawaii, right? And it's obviously a comparable culture. So what do you think might be the difference, if you were to venture a guess, what, what might be the difference in the two? Is it just that uh, Hawaii has been so heavily imperialized, whereas Vanuatu has, has not? Or what I, do you think? I don't, yeah, I don't think it's being imperialized. I think it's probably more the number of tourists would be my guess and the type of tourists. Uh, when on Vanuatu, uh, on Tana, the majority of the tourists that visit there uh, are flying in, not, you know, it's not easy. It's not a, a cruise ship type trip you would take. It's, it's a more of an adventure thing. So those people are coming in and then leaving and not interacting with the people very much. The other tourists that arrive are people like us uh, that come on sailboats. And because of Volcano, most uh, people that are sailing uh, the South Pacific or, or, or the world will try to go there. And so they'll have at times four or five, six sailboats will come in during a season or at a time even, and they meet those people. And I think that's a really different style of tourists because these are tourists that are coming in that are quite happy to stay there for a week or two weeks and get to know the people and are not the type of tourists that you generally look at if you see you know, people taking a tour to Hawaii. So that would be my guess. And have you done any kind of uh, research into the, the concept of the noble savage by any chance? And how has your experience with people who could be labeled that by certain people changed that? To, to me, when, and the people that we got to know, we spent a lot of time with. And uh, to me, they, they became friends or we knew just like uh, anybody I would know back in California or anywhere else, different interests and different knowledge. Uh, but truly just normal people. I, I mean, if they, you know, dress differently and... Uh, you know, moved here, you would just think they were just normal, great local people. I mean, I, I don't think there's anything special about the, the whole savage idea. But. Jim, can you give us an idea how people can find out about uh, how they can find out more about you on the internet? Yes, we actually have a, a website that was for our sailing adventures. Uh, started originally just for us and our friends and family, uh, but it does... Uh, have all the places that we have sailed over the last we've been sailing for 10 years uh and there's a lot of a lot of information on there about vanuatu and the things that we did in vanuatu just because we loved it so much so there's many many pages of the website okay great and that's the website for that is uh what is it tanaya travels which is t-e-n-a-y-a travels.com that's correct tanaya is the name of our sailboat Okay, excellent. And you can also just do a Google search for Jim Thompson, and that's with an E-N at the end, so T-H-O-M-S-E-N, and then John Frum. If you do Jim Thompson, John Frum, or Jim Thompson Cargo Cults, then you'll get um, all, a lot, quite a few pages related to Jim Thompson and Katie Thompson, his wife. During hour two of our interview with Jim Thompson, 
We discussed the John Frum messianic millenarianism. The purpose of cargo cults. Is John Frum a cargo cult? Jim summarizes his book, Searching for John Frum, Quest for the True Story of the John Frum Movement. Is it really a cargo cult? He discusses kava drinking, relationship between the genders in Tana and Vanuatu, custom, magic, British, French, American, Western colonialism and colonization, Tana Port Resolution Bay Lagoon, the happiness levels of oceanic peoples, racial categories, sand drawings, scuba diving in a shipwreck, magical elements of Melanesian culture, control of weather, medicine men and shamans, ritual dance, altars, a magic stone, economy, and a movie about Tana. Thank you for listening to Hour One of Jesse War Radio. We hope that you have enjoyed this program and found it informative. Stay tuned and check back each Friday for a new episode. Please like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash jessiewar and follow us on Twitter at jessiewar, or one word. Members can access Hour 2 of all shows in the Members Archive at jessiewar.com. If you haven't yet considered becoming a member of Jesse War Radio, please click on the subscribe link in the top navigation bar at jessiewar.com where you can register for access to the Members Archive, where both hours of all shows are available. Jesse War Radio is where we keep on peering further and further behind the veil of esoteric iconology and symbolism, with a new show every Friday. Farewell, until next time.